0: It's good to see you. Um, I was away last week, uh, preaching away. But it's always a good feeling to be back. It may not be mutual feeling, but it feels good for me to be back because church is a family, isn't it? So you know, as we as we journey on together, we are on a journey together. You know, we become more and more a family together. And so, you know, because my job takes me away from time to time, preaching away, uh, it's a funny feeling. But I actually, I have a longing to get back to see people. You know, so it's. A, that's a good thing, and as I look at this passage this morning, it, it's actually quite a hard-hitting one, and I just think, well, I hope that God uses it to help us all journey on together. So, we're going to try and steer our way through Acts 9, and I have the uh, delightful task of teaching on raising the dead. So, uh, which is no small little subject, really. Um, interestingly enough, I was just musing on this with a couple of fellas this week when I was out and about, It's very interesting how culture and society impacts our our view of the world, you know, so hundreds of years ago uh, there was a general framework in society that that God was there and God was in charge of all things and all things should be attributed to God. When someone died they'd say that was that was God, you know, if someone was healed that is God Uh, if bad things happen, that is God. If good things happen, that is God. It's God's grace, it's God's mercy, this is God's will, and that, that was that. So there was a general framework that God is there and God exists. And then we hit this thing, this is a very potted. this is the puffing book, you know, history version. But then as history persisted and culture changed, uh, we hit what we call the Victorian crisis of faith. As Darwin published The Origin of Species and we had the Industrial Revolution. People's framework changed, and and the church hemorrhaged thousands of people in the Victorian era, as people built factories and buildings and engineering took place, and people started to uh, argue about our origins more than ever before. People started to say, "Well, I mean, the nebula hypothesis for those you into this kind of thing was about 1755, I think, where a guy came first that invented a theory that." Uh, we don't need God to explain where we come from. And when it didn't really gain in popularity, I like a guy called Dillard Place, I don't know if they killed him or not, but it wasn't a very popular thing to say back then. But then, as we went into the Victorian era, and Darwin has had published his, his thesis, uh, more and more people were looking for an explanation of why we live and why we're around without God. And that has a massive impact on our ability to believe that we're in a supernatural world. This world is not just a physical world that we see. So he we went into the modernist era, and we, and you know, as the, some of the philosophers said, we, we don't need God now. God is dead. You know, we don't need that now. And then, of course, we hit what we now call in the postmodern era, where people realise they're living their lives in a vacuum. Because we can't just explain everything through rational thought. Uh, and so people get into mysticism and other kinds of things. a multitude of beliefs which is a very acceptable way forward now but we've lost this framework that there's a spiritual world and i say this because uh as you know i some of my stuff in the past was men's nights and our our days and men's ministry i've dabbled in that a little bit since i was doing a men's day yesterday until late in cambridge and uh, earlier this week i had a meeting And whenever i do things like that people always want to do things like have a curry so uh, i had a curry on Tuesday, I've had a lot of curry over the last ten years or so, and I had a curry. i was sick of it, to be honest with you. So I, this guy said, "Can we have a meeting uh, about stuff?" And I said, "Well, i was thinking, please can we have a pizza? Please can we just have us some chicken? Oh no, we've got to go for a curry." So he said, "It's a Tuesday night, we don't have to book." I was like, oh, okay, that's so we turned up at this curry house, and it was packed on a Tuesday night in Worcester absolutely rammed. So we sit on a little sofa, uh, which is quite embarrassing, because we're both quite wide. Sit on a little sofa, waiting for a table. The table pops up, the finest one in the corner. And uh, we place an order. And I said, what's good on the menu? He said by uh, a Bangladeshi guy. He said, I don't know. He said, I hate curry, I eat fish and chips. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, I don't have that sort of I said, I just want meat. He said, I bring up a nice mixed grill. Fantastic. I said, why is it so busy? He said, it's a psychic night. Thought, well, well, well. Because the person sitting opposite me was my mate Gary, who's a national evangelist. So here's the thing: we've got a way to in a curry house who fish and chips. In a curry house that's full of people there for a psychic night. And and we've got a national evangelist and one of the leaders of the Indian Pentecostal churches in the UK in a curry house on a psychic night. Now it sounds like the start of a joke. But it wasn't. So I'm sitting there thinking, oh, I don't know what to do about this, really. Um, because you get to a point in life where actually all you want to do is just have your curry and go to bed. And I know you're thinking, now this story is going to go into this crescendo of amazing evangelism. Where I stood up and preached the gospel and I told them about the evils of psychic stuff. See the Bible for those of you who are not sure about this, the Bible just says don't do it, so that's good enough for me. You know, don't do it, okay? Fair play, don't do it. So God says it can happen, but don't mess with these things. You know, we could go into that another time, but that's, that's the basic premise. So I was sitting there thinking, I'll be honest, Lord, I don't really feel like evangelizing, I just want my chicken ticker. Do you ever had a moment like that in a psychic night? Well that's how I felt. So I said to Gary, I said, "Um, what are we going to do then? And he said, I just want to have my biryani really. So I said, well, let's have a little pray. So we we sat at the table and we just had a little pray. I just prayed in the spirit a little bit and then I just said, we said, God, please trash the psychic night and let everyone have a good curry and then please can we have a curry in peace. And then I said to Gary, um, I'll tell you what, if the psychics end up near us and they want to have a chat, let's have a chat. Other than that, let's, just, let's have a quiet time in, don't that nothing happens. And it turns out the psychics are <laughs> sitting next to us, so I didn't realise like that. Uh, so they're going around with a little bell, and they're ringing the bell, and every time the bell rings, a psychic would leave a table and go to another table to do some reading. So every now and again, there's a little bell, I'm having my chicken ticker, little bell, and then the psychics will move around. After about 20 minutes, all the psychics come back to the table next to us. So I thought, this is it, this is the moment where we're going to be able to do a little bit of or And Do you know what they said? It was absolutely fascinating. They said, um, we're getting lots of complaints. One said, we're getting lots of complaints. And I said, oh, yeah. are you getting what I'm getting? And they said, yeah. they said We've not had any readings tonight. And the other person said, are you getting, there's all this background noise, like white noise, as you're trying to listen. No, I said, yeah, it's this background noise. Low, I can't get any readings from your spirit guides. So me and Gary just sat and went, yes. And I thought, I could lean over now and say, now let me tell you why that is. It's because of Jesus Christ. But I thought, no, I'm just going to be tick and tick and go home. So I was just being honest about that. But I thought, how fascinating is that? Because we don't often talk about the spiritual battle that's around us. I think I might have mentioned it before. I had a client once when I was in banking who turned out to be a medium. I thought, I don't know how to handle this, how do I handle this? And uh, I just said, ask us ask spirit guys in between our appointments, who's in charge on the other side? I thought that's a good way in. Yeah? Who's in charge on the other side? Who's the boss? When I came back to her, I actually you know, avoided my next appointment, but I saw him in the banking hall a month later, and I said, did you ask the question? I said, did you turn up to your appointment? And they went, yeah, I did, yeah. I said, what was the answer? And this was the answer, in their words. I asked the spirit guys who's in charge on the other side, and the spirit said to me, "The Christ is in charge on the other side. The Christ, followed by, and if you talk to that man in the bank again, we'll stop talking to you. There's a battle, isn't it? Which is why I didn't turn up for the appointment. There is a spiritual battle going around, all around us, going on, all around us. The problem we often have." in our tradition of church as evangelicals is that we base a lot of our faith and practice on the truth and on the word but we leave it as theory in practice. It becomes a moral framework for living a morally reinforced life, sometimes a little bit legalistic and lacking in grace because we step outside of that spiritual world that exists all around us. This body is just an earth machine. One day we will die and leave this body behind. There is a spiritual world. I don't know if you've ever seen anyone die. But when you see someone slip away that animation goes out of their body. It's a strange thing. As if something leaves. This life is very temporary. There is a spiritual world all around us, we sometimes we need to understand that in a fresh way. So just hold that in your head when I read this, because I think that gives you some explanation here of what's happening. We're actually starting the reading from Acts 9, 26, and this is shortly after Saul, who becomes Paul, has become a Christian. And, and they're hunting him down, and uh, some people want to kill him. Uh, but he escapes in a basket through an opening in the wall. And then we come to verse 26. When he, that Saul, who became Paul, came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. Acts 9, verse 26. They didn't believe he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul, on his journey, had seen the Lord. And that the Lord had spoken to him. And how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Look at that, he comes to Christ and is on it already. So he had an impact on him. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. And when the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. And we're going to stop it there before we get on to the next section. I find that a very fascinating way of coming out of verse 31. They lived in the fear of the Lord, but were encouraged by the Holy Spirit. That's actually a very fascinating set of almost opposite statements. We live in fear, but we're encouraged. I just find that a very fascinating way of structuring that. I think, what's actually happening there? Now, what I've seen happen in churches often is that something gets lost, and it's a little tiny word called balance, which is really important. Sometimes churches develop a very healthy fear of the Lord. I think that is dramatically missing in the church today. Some churches capture it, many churches lose it. There's an over-familiarity about God that can break out amongst people as we experience grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. There's an over-familiarity that that concerns some people and actually stops people journeying to God. So we think we're losing... You know, some sense of a healthy respect of God. I, I do believe that we should have a healthy fear of God. Uh, I, I think we should approach him sometimes, uh, or if not all the time, with a sense of fear and trembling, actually, when we pray. And sometimes I hear an overfamiliarity that concerns me. Um, I, I mean, it's like, I mean, I'm going to embarrass my kids here now. It's a bit like when you're parenting. You know, you love your kids with all your heart. Honestly, I do love them with all my heart. Just so you know that. You love them with all your heart, and you want the best for them, and you, you want to nurture and protect them. You want them to do better than you ever did, didn't you? You want to propel them into life, uh, just feeling loved, and unconditional love and secure, and all of that stuff. But sometimes, you've got to tell them off. I mean, my kids have been naughty about once, in their whole lives. And that one time, when they misbehaved, I had to tell them off. And, that, you know, and that's a difficult thing because sometimes you don't want to do it. But but God does discipline his children. He's a loving father and a loving father will correct us. And I think it's right that our kids have a healthy honour and respect for parents. I think that society loses something when we lose that. But I think it's almost an analogy really for us and God. I, I, I believe quite deeply really that as we journey into the things of God and we experience a joy in worshipping and getting to know Him and experience God more, we still keep the sense of where we are on our knees before Him. Because He's a holy God. And He holds our life, our lives, in His hands. Moment by moment, nanosecond by nanosecond, He's <coughs> sustaining us. And when I became a Christian, one of the reasons I became an evangelist with a compulsion to tell people about Jesus for the rest of my life was because I had a revelation of hell. It's something we talk about not very frequently and we should talk about it in hushed tones such as its horror. By this deep revelation that people are lost. But then this revelation that God is holding us by a thread of his grace from hell. And that, to this day, has given me a sense of awesome fear of a holy God, but that, but that fear and that love going together. Because the flip side is that people were encouraged by the Holy Spirit, so there was this great joy breaking out as well. And some churches go massively down the Holy Spirit stuff and forget about the respect and the fear and the honour of God. And somehow these two things have to hold together. And I think when we hold those things together, I think we can know great joy and great liberty and freedom and grace and fun and all of that. But we have a boundary around us. It says, God is awesome. He's awesome. And I believe that when we understand that, then we see the power of God starting to move amongst us. Because I think it pleases God do. I think that pleases God. I mean, it holds you back from doing stuff too. And it helps you keep your life in order. I think if you go too far down that track of fear and awesomeness, you lose no joy, just like a miserable bunch of whats But If we go down the other track of ultimate liberation, then there's just nothingness. We're just a bunch of people mucking about. Somewhere in the middle is that dynamic tension of the fear of the Lord. We are encouraged by the Holy Spirit, and I I think that's just something we have to journey in together. I just found that a very fascinating thing. I find it fascinating too how there is this sense of one minute, you know, Paul is almost going to be killed, and the next minute there's great peace over everyone. It's again this dynamic tension of you know the kingdom is now but not yet. As we explore healing, you know, I think we need to understand that we we are not home yet we are not seeing the fullness of the kingdom yet. The kingdom is yet to come. But we see God breaking in onto our lives. So we move on. As Peter travels through the country, verse 32, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. And there he found a man named Annius who was paralyzed and had been bedridden for eight years. Ananias, uh, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. That right there, is very important. That is a proclamation that Jesus is alive. It's not just a be healed statement, that is Jesus Christ heals you. Now anyone listening on to that, who might have been aware that Jesus had just been crucified, and might not have heard about the resurrection or some rumours, that is a radical proclamation that Jesus is alive and doing stuff right now. Right now amongst us. When we see these things happen, it's a proclamation that Jesus is alive. And as a church, we need to keep proclaiming that. Get up and roll up your mat, and immediately Anias got up, and all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Do you know, in in half of the healings in Acts, it was all well. Half of the sorry, half of the proclamation of the gospel, occasions in Acts, were accompanied by radical healing. Put it around that way. So on half the occasions when the gospel was preached, there was healing. That's got to tell you something. That's quite interesting. In Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha, in Greek her name is Dorcas. And she was always doing good and helping the poor. And about that time she became ill and died. And her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. I think that detail in verse 37, her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room, So, no one could look at it and say, Was she really dead? I think if they'd washed her body down and then carried the body to an upper room, it is trying to tell you, Yes, she was definitely dead. Just so we're clear. Lida was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lida, they sent two men to him and urged him, Please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was with him. And Peter sent him all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. And turning towards the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. So he's speaking to the corpse Tabitha, get up. I'm struggling to read this with my glasses. So I need to put that down. I've got this weird thing going on with my eyes at uh, she opened her eyes and seeing peter she sat up and he took her by the hand and helped her to her feet then he called for the believers especially the widows and presented it to them alive i'm going to add a word unsurprisingly this became known all over joppa and many people believed in the lord and peter stayed in joppa for some time with a tanner named simon can you imagine what that was like I mean, there would have been lots of wailing and lots of noise and lots of kerfuffle, as was the Middle Eastern way, so it's, it's complete chaos. And then he sends everyone out of the room, which is pretty much akin to Mark 5. Do you remember when Jesus went to do the healing and he said, everyone clear out except Peter and John. He just took people with him who had faith. So it's all chaos, everyone out. He goes in, speaks to the corpse, basically, this is the, the want version, get up. And then she just gets up and then then opens the door, finds all the widows and went, I'm paraphrasing now, check this out. I mean, that is shocking. If that happened in Chesterfield Market, there would be an uproar. I mean, definitely a lot of people would come to faith. I would contend. So this is quite an astonishing thing that is happening here. And we need to try and make sense of it because, as you know, Uh, In Chesterfield, and in the surrounding Derbyshire villages, it is not a common thing to see people come back from the dead. So we need to try and understand what is God saying to us today. Um, And I'm not going to regale you with loads of stories about occasions when I've been around raising people from the dead. Uh, Because I haven't got loads of those stories, uh, much as though I wish I did. I have seen, however, some very interesting things. Um, But just before we go into that, I think there's just a couple of points uh, that would be useful for us to explore. Uh, Just really trying to analyse some of the content here uh, to make sense of it. I find it interesting that she was definitely dead and then the disciples hear that there's a man of God about and they go and find him. Now, there's something in that detail there. Did you notice that, that... They, I mean, we don't know that they tried to pray for her. They hear that Peter's around and they go and get him. And that tells me two things. One, that the apostles had some incredible reputation for doing amazing things and that was spreading around. Two, it tells us that they were still in faith despite the fact that she was dead. Now, I find that one of the most challenging things in the entire passage. I find that more challenging than the fact that she was dead and came back. Because it says something about them. That fledgling group of disciples, because these were new followers really, they had faith that Jesus was alive and that he could do anything he chooses. Because if they didn't believe that, they wouldn't have gone and got him. I find that more compelling than the fact that you came back from the dead. Because it tells me something about the heart in that group of followers. Do you see what I mean? There is some dynamic of faith going on. And that connected with the Holy Spirit, that faith and belief connected with the presence of the Holy Spirit and when Peter went there he kicks out all the people who don't have faith and that miracle happens. One occasion I can remember, and it, it was involved a dear friend of mine and Karen's. We got news that a, a very, uh, well been a childhood friend of Karen's husband had been involved in a very, very bad road accident. Driving his Land Range Rover out of a golf club and a lorry had plowed into it, and it, was, it, it. The news came to us while well, I was having a pastoral meeting in my church in Essex. Uh, and I was a student pastor at the time. And I was there with an elder, a senior pastor, in the pastoral team, at Rebs church. And, and the news came in that the accident had happened and he was in intensive care on a life support system. And, and he they, they, they was on the edge of being clinically dead. So me and John, who is is now uh, passed away, John, his elder of church, lovely man of God, we looked at each other, and I said to John, "We've got to get there. We've got to get there now, now." And we jumped in a car, and we drove for half an hour, and we got to the hospital, and this fella's wife was waiting in the reception area for intensive care, and as I walked in. I forgot what psalm is. is. Uh, I know the content of it. As I walked in, this psalm dropped into my head and I, I saw, I said, Hazel, I think the Lord wants to give you this song." I was only in your early 20s. Never really done anything like this before because you don't really see it like that by your early 20s. I just said, As a dear pants, for the water, so my soul longs after you. And, and just started to give it a song. She burst into tears and said, that was my baptism song. That's why I think the Lord is with us. The Lord is with us. So it's just a great comfort. But when you go into intensive care, um well the pass and stuff at the hospital, so you scrub your hands and put a thing on and, and open your thing. I think that's I wear a mask actually, if I And uh she so go in there. And, and we got permission, just John and I to go in together. And as we went in, uh, this guy was on the bed and with all the monitors and the machines hooked up to him. And, and he was on his way out, very, very bad, uh, head injury, and he's on his way, basically. And, um, I mean, the doctors said, it's, it's about as bad as it gets, so he's just about hanging in there, you know, kind of thing. I'm paraphrasing, which is a long time ago, but that was that kind of conversation. So we didn't know what to do, but we had faith. Because I was in my early twenties, you see, and I was a new Christian. And no one had told me that God couldn't do stuff, so I hadn't been reprogrammed. No, I, I hadn't unlearned that God can heal people. See, so it just felt normal. I didn't feel this was dramatic. I just prayed, and he said, "I'm going to tell you exactly what happened. You, you make me what you want." So I just said, "Holy Spirit, would you come and would you, would you, you know, would you move upon Nigel?" Touch his life healing. And, and and John, who was an elder of the church, actually went to fall over under the power of God on top of him. Such was the power to move the Holy Spirit. I mean, I didn't feel anything. I'll be honest, didn't feel anything. Johnny nearly went over. And I've never seen John do anything like this before in my life because he actually was quite a formal guy. But he's here in a certain time. You know, I mean, this is back in the day, you know, he's a proper elder. So he just goes over and, he, and he's propping himself up over this bloke who's dying. You couldn't make it out could you? It's like a French farce. So I said, John, what are you doing? He said, I can't speak. He said, I feel the weight, the weight of God on me. So John's now leaning on the bed and we pray some more and we pray some more. And, and <coughs> Nigel... Wakes up. He wakes up. And the end result of the story was he's alive. And he was left with a little bit of nerve damage in his face. So he gets a bit of a droopy lip. But he's, all these years later, alive and well and running a men's ministry in his local church. Now, it would not to the dead, but for me, I, I, it's a lesson that I hadn't been unprogrammed from faith and belief, and God met my faith. I think that's so important for us as a church. But you see, the kingdom is now, but not yet. So sometimes people die. You remember that little word, balance? sometimes people get sick and they don't get well sometimes there are prolonged periods of suffering sometimes people preach the gospel and people got saved other times they preach the gospel and they got killed because the kingdom is now but not yet but nowhere does it say don't do these things nowhere does it say don't pray for healing nowhere does it say don't have faith because it might not work Nowhere does you say, don't have faith, because that could be offensive to people. Nowhere. The kingdom is now but not yet. And sometimes I've learned that whereas we see these dynamic things here, sometimes you have to punch through. Another occasion, Karen and I got news that one of our, uh, who became a dear friend, one of Karen's um, ex-bosses, he'd been diagnosed with throat cancer. He was a, a senior government advisor and he'd been diagnosed with throat cancer. He'd been out in Africa, got a sore throat, couldn't swallow properly. They sent him over, got a scan. He had a very vicious and violent throat cancer. He had a, a cancer that had grown to the size of a walnut in his throat. So Karen, being Karen, because I'll talk about it, Karen does it. She got in touch with him and said, "We'd like to come and play for you." But the guy was an atheist, wasn't he? He'd been brought up in the Christian home, but turned his back on it, hadn't he? Parents were Plymouth Brethren, so closer. So, he'd react to the game, so he reacted against. They weren't a believer. Very bright guy and had all kinds of you know, reasons, why rational reasons. Remember what I said, rational thought, <laughs> rational reasons why you wouldn't believe. But when Karen offered him prayer, funny how when you're staring in the face of death, he might start to change your mind a little bit, isn't it? So he said, yeah, I'd love you to come and pray. He said if he couldn't speak it, we just got word back because he lost the ability to speak. Because he had <coughs> a tracheotomy cut, however you say, and he's been fed through a tube in his stomach and it was all pretty bad. So we went to pray for him, we had to drive for a couple of hours, went from Essex into Herne Hill, and we, long story short, we laid hands on him and prayed, and I'm learning about this. See, I'm still not, I'm not unlearned that God can do this. And I've never unlearned all my my journey. I clung in there. I clung in there through thick and thin. We laid hands on him and prayed, and he started vibrating, didn't he? Do you remember? He started vibrating like one of those pneumatic drills. And I thought, I don't know what's going on, like this. Now this guy's an intellectual. He's a proper intellectual, rational man. Not into, and he wasn't expecting that. I mean, the prayer was almost, it was reluctant acceptance. <laughs> really. So we can look at each other going, what is happening here? Because I've never seen anyone vibrate like a magic drill before. I mean, this is all new. And he's sweating as well. And I thought he'd been healed. But at the end of the prayer, he said, he wrote down on his pad, he said, I feel fantastic. And I, so I said, do you think you've been healed? And he went, no, I feel fantastic. <laughs> I went, okay. So I said to him, I've got a bit more faith in this now, but I said to him, I'll come and pray for you, it's a very naive promise, every week until you either die or you are healed. Now, I don't think i will be as terse as that these days, but that is actually what I said. I'll pray for you every week until you die. Healed. As we left the house, I thought, that's a bit of a commitment actually, because that's a couple of hours drive every week, each way to go and pray for him. But you know what, I did it. And so I'd get on my motorbike and I'd drive up into London, and sometimes i only have 10 minutes with him, because I was busy, you know. So I'd go and I'd pray for him, then I'd leave. Do you know what, he was meant to be dead in eight weeks, I think at the time, we had eight weeks of life left. Seven to nine months later, so i am going up every week, he's still not dead. So I've become an expert lip reader. Just bear that in mind when you're talking about me behind my back so I can see what you are saying. I became very good at lip reading. And we would talk about the economy and history and philosophy and the gospel and all that kind of stuff. And every week I'd pray for him and sometimes he'd vibrate like a pneumatic drill. Sometimes nothing would happen and and he wasn't getting healed but we we became friends. After seven to nine months, I can't remember which, we got a message. I got a message saying the Macmillan nurse is a bit confused. While I'm not dead, so I've been sent for reassessment. And so he goes into hospital and gets reassessed. And then I get a message back saying the tumour, which had obviously affected all around his things, plumbing, uh, affected his plumbing, uh, was not evident anymore. And the tumour was resting, it shrunk. The other interesting thing was that they'd said to him back in the months earlier, we can give you another year of life if you take your voice box out. And he said, I'd rather die intact. Fair play. The tumour left a trail of scar tissue off his voice box. This is all documented. It moved off his voice box and was now just resting. So they said to him, we think we can operate on you and lift the tumour out. Uh, but it's a risky operation. And he said, no, I want my mate to keep praying for me. Write it down. I just believe that prayer will do it. So now he's become a Christian. See, because you would, wouldn't you? So now he's become a Christian. So when he told me that message, I went, you're mad. Get the operation, because I'm out of faith. It's been seven months. So I thought, what? you just, oh, power and weakness, isn't it? I thought, you know, my work here is complete. So uh, he had the operation. And they lifted that tumour out of him and they put him back together and they wrote on his notes, cured. Cured. And as I walked into that hospital, it's an amazing moment. As I walked into the hospital and I saw him, the Lord spoke to me and said he's Nebuchadnezzar because he had pride against me. And I laid him low now bringing him back. And i am going to see him promoting, I'm going to bless him. I'm going to bless him more in the next stage of his life. He was told because of the radiation treatment he wouldn't have kids. Well they got twins. And when he went back to work he got promoted. He went back as a man of God. having a senior the advisor in the World Bank and now in the Australian government. And he's still going. One race the dead as good as seven months of prayer never lost my faith i won't try if going to make it through but every time i pray for him i believed the kingdom is now but not yet and sometimes we pray and people don't come through and sometimes we're with long-term sickness disability the kingdom is now but not yet but our responsibility i believe is to pray A few years back, just to finish, I I was asked to do a funeral for some non-Christian people, and they said we want a a talk about hope, but we don't want anything to do with your faith. We want to sing that. uh, What's that song? Thine be the glory. You want that? (laughs) We don't want a Christian funeral, but can we sing Thine be the glory? Anyway, so. I was like, Lord, what do I speak of? What do I speak on? And I couldn't get a clear idea. How could, I'm not a motivational speaker. I mean, I, I, mean, I could do it. It's, but it's not me. I'm a gospel guy, you know. But I, I had a dream. I had a dream. I had a dream. And in this dream, I lived my life. I was a little boy. And I grew up and I got a job. And I got married and had kids. And then... There's one point in the dream where I I looked in the mirror and I was an old man, a very old man, and I knew uh, my life was coming to an end, and I woke up, and I'm lying there in the early hours of the morning, and I said to the Lord, what is this? I just thought it was God speaking to me, see. I said, what is this? I felt the Lord say, try and remember the details of the dream. So I'll just be honest. First thing I was, I can't remember who I was married to in the dream. Who was that? Was that Karen? I can't remember. That's weird. I thought, what job did I have? I can't remember. I can remember details, sort of, but not detailed details. Do you know what I mean? When you wake up from a dream, you have the impression of the dream. And then I felt the Lord speak to me, just deep inside, really. One day, son, you'll die. And you'll wake up. And when you wake up, you'll be truly alive, because you'll be with me. And this life, with all its pain and its ups and its downs and its victories and its defeats, and the struggles, the trials, it'll be as if you have woken up from a dream. And you'll really be living. And that is how we live. A family on a journey. The kingdom is now, but it is not yet. But one day we'll truly live. And we can know the fullness of life now. There'll be times of hope, and times of joy, there'll be times when we pray for people and good things happen. There'll be times we pray for people and we all grieve together. That's what families do. Because we ain't there yet. But no words that say do not have faith. No words that say do not believe. And the important thing is, in every single occasion you see someone healed, there is a proclamation that Jesus is alive. It is a signpost, it is a radical signpost to a coming kingdom. That's what our lives here about our radical signpost to a coming kingdom. And until that time, we live with joy, hope, and expectancy. Sometimes we grieve. Sometimes we mourn. Other times we laugh. It's a journey it? that, family journey, not.